0: hands on you and pray for you. Uh, you have really missed out. We are planning another trip like we were supposed to get back about a month ago, uh, but something came up. I can't remember what it was. Uh, but we are having a team that, that's going to go next August, and, and it's the team that was going to go last year, but I'm sure we maybe could make room if things pan out. But um, we, of those 20 years that they've been in ministry there, we've partnered with them for about 18 years, sending teams down I think probably eight or nine times. Um, and it really is, it's very fitting that they sing a blessing over you because that's what they do. We go down to help and serve in any way we can, but we always realize it's a partnership that we bless and they bless. And Anyway, enough of that. I'll wax eloquent about that other times. Uh, we're, we're in the season of foundations. That's why it's not that we're doing a construction project back here and somebody forgot to clean up. We're, we're illustrating the fact that in the fall of every year we come back and we tell the story of Israel. We start on a four-year cycle with, with Genesis and we talk about creation and the early you know, Abraham and all that. And then we move into the Exodus in year two and year three. We talk about the, you know, the, the initial settling into the promised land. And year four, which is where we are now, we talk about the monarchy, the period of the Jewish history when the kings were there. And I've, I've titled this series, The Problem with Kings... Uh, part of that was because of there's an election nearby, and it's fun to kind of play with political stuff, but part of it is we're going to look at the kings of Israel, uh, specifically Saul, David, uh, Solomon, and then when the kingdom divides, and we're going to learn about what their lives can speak into our lives. So last week we talked about Saul. Remember, he was waiting. He was going to be wiped out by the Philistines, he felt like. He had this, this pressure on him, and he bowed to his perception in the eyes of the people, rushed the sacrifice, did not wait for Samuel like he should. Um, This week we're going to go one more sermon with Saul. It's it's a bit of an unusual story. It's got some things that I'm very clearly going to avoid uh, in the text, and I'll explain those to you, and uh, you may disagree with me avoiding them, but uh, you also have the internet. You can find your own theories about that. But but the text that we pick up is 1 Samuel chapter 18. So if you want to turn there to 1 Samuel 18, it's right after the famous David and Goliath story. David has just killed Goliath. They've routed the Philistines. Uh, Saul has spent some time talking with David, finding out who he is, getting to know him a little bit more. Uh, And we pick up the text uh, in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, and like I say, there's a couple things that are going to stand out to you. Uh, Just don't worry. I'm going to avoid those completely so you don't have to figure them out. Just kidding. 18.1. Then after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as himself and Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. And whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army and this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but he'd left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And Saul said to David, here's my older older daughter Merib, I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? and What is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? And so when the time came for Merib, Saul's daughter to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. And then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. And they repeated these words to David. But David said, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him that David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price For the bride, than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son in law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son in law. And then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. And when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out in battle as often as they did, and David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Now, like I said, there's a couple things I'm going to skip over, some things that might bother you. For example, verse 10, the next day an evil or the Hebrew word injurious, meaning to injure spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. What are you going to do with that, Jeff? I'm going to jump right over it because you have the Internet and you can find out what everybody thinks about that. My personal opinion is that we need to relax about that and let God be God. And realize that the way they write is telling the story of what happened and not, not freak out about that. But if you want to freak out about that, go ahead. The reason I'm not spending time on it is because I do not believe that that actually will conform you into Christ's likeness if you know the answer to that. I think that's not the problem with your spiritual life, not knowing the answer to that. So we're going to skip that. We're also going to skip this sport killing of 200 Philistines as a way to pay the royal dowry. Okay, you've you, you got to think about that too. That's probably some of us culturally sensitivity that, you know, it's kind of let's wipe these guys out and do this humiliating thing. Um, like I say, there are a million sites on the internet. If you want opinions about those, there are a million of them out there. But I don't think those opinions are what's going to move you closer to conformity to the image of Christ necessarily. So we're going to skip over those and look at something else. Those, those are what I call knowledge nuggets, where you have them and you know them and you have an answer but sometimes they actually make you more arrogant and prideful instead of more Christ-like. So spend all the time you want looking for those, but we're not going to spend the next 25 minutes looking at them. Is that fair? You don't have a choice, do you, right? (laughs) Nobody else wants to take those on. What I want to do, though, is I want to look at the interplay of the relationships in the text, to look at some of the key players and look at their interactions with each other and, and the relationships, because relationships always involve emotions. And you know, preaching this text is kind of like walking through a minefield. What, there's so many questions, so many it, that's the way the Old Testament is. There's so many things we don't understand because culturally it's so far away. And what, I, what I'm going to try to do is navigate some of that and try to call attention to the things that actually we need to apply to our own life. One of the, one of the obvious emotions in the text you saw it, everybody saw it. Saul is jealous of David. David seems to be one of those guys. You ever had a guy like that in your life who could do everything? Whatever they tried to do, they were good at? So it's it very irritating, <laughs> right? Like, I think my brother-in-law, I hope he's not watching, but he's kind of like that. He was a great athlete. He's smart. He, people like him. Anything he does, he just does well, right? And, and, and those people are irritated. Well, that's David. And so, verse 5, it says, every single thing he did, I say that. verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people. He was, he was a great military leader and the people loved him. Everything he did turned to gold. And that's the kind of guy you want on your side up to a certain point. right? And Saul had reached this point, And things start going south in verse 6 to 8 when this new top 40 hit comes out with the women singing about Saul killing his thousands and David killing his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, what else is he going to He might as well be the king. He was very angry, it says. There's another emotion. Very angry. And from that time on, it says, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And it goes downhill from there. Verse 10 and 11, he throws a spear at him to pin him against the wall. And it says, David eluded him twice, so he must have gotten the spear and done it again. You know, when it happens, David probably thinks, is that an accident? And then the spear's coming again. He's like, I don't think either one of those was an accident, right? And in, in, uh, I was laughing because he's playing the harp. And Saul throws a spear at him. And I had this vision of American Idol, the TV show, right, with Simon Cowell. And somebody is so bad that Simon just hurls. No, he, nobody was ever that bad. And yet David's playing the harp. Saul's throwing a spear at him. In verse 17, he tries to get him as his son-in-law, which looks like a good thing. But he wants him to do that, to promise to lead his armies because he thinks maybe he'll die in battle. David says, no, who am, who am I to marry the king's daughter? David's just, he's even good at humility. Doesn't he make you a little sick? He's just, no, who am I? I'm not worthy of being the king's son-in-law. Well, round two, Michael loves him, and, and, and Saul says, I tell you what I'll do. I, not only, i will just lower the bride price. All he has to do is kill some Philistines. And David thinks, well, I can do that, right? So he goes and not only kills 100 like asked, he kills 200. And Saul, it says, is completely frustrated. He's completely jealous. Saul can't seem to get anything right. And David can't seem to get anything wrong. That's the situation. And Saul's very jealous. And what makes it even worse is that Saul's kids love David. Right? Can you imagine the dinner table? Michael, Jonathan talking about what a great guy David is. And Saul's just seething. Jonathan and David form this incredible friendship. It says they're one in spirit. And they make, Jonathan makes a covenant with him. There's this deep bond here. And Michael, it says, falls in love with him. She thinks he's, he's the, the, the guy on the white horse for her. And as, as you look deeper into the text, you can begin to see the fruits of both love and jealousy. And like I say, this is still nothing too profound. We're going to get to where I think it matters in the, in the end, but I'm kind of building I'm building anticipation for why it really matters. But the, the fruits of love and jealousy, you know, emotions aren't neutral. I know people say feelings aren't either good or bad, and I would agree with that. You get the, the, the feeling of anger isn't good or bad, but what you do with it is important, right? It, actually, there are things that make you angry, and the Bible even says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't ever get angry, but it says don't let that emotion drive you somewhere. And emotions left unexamined and not dealt with take you places. They bear fruit. And the emotions being experienced in this text shape the lives of the people who are feeling them. Uh, On the part of Jonathan, we can see that love leads to sacrificial service and humility. Humility. We know this. This is not rocket science, right? You're all with me. When we love somebody, we serve them. We sacrifice for them. We, we, we approach them with humility. We live with them humbly. And we see that from Jonathan. He meets David. He finds a kindred spirit. Remember the text last week? Jonathan was the guy that attacked the post in Gibeah that started the whole controversy with the Philistines during this time, right? And he didn't even have swords or spears, but he attacked. And he t- sounds a lot like David. Jonathan's a military guy. He gets things done. He's a leader. And he meets David, and he finds his kindred spirit. There's this sense of bravery and camaraderie that the two of them have. And it says in verses 3 and 4, the language is very specific. It says, Jonathan gave David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament Hebrew scholar, says the wording here, the text appears to be referring to the transfer of the right of the throne to David. He's taking off the royal garments and the royal weapons. Everything that he has as the crown prince. And he's giving it to the shepherd boy. Jonathan's saying, David, you're going to be the next king. And I'm going to follow you instead of the other way around. In 1 Samuel 23, 16 and 17, David's on the run from Saul, which is where this is leading to. It says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horus and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid. David or Jonathan said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. And even my father Saul knows this. Jonathan, right from the start, knew that David was going to be the next king. And he loved him. And he pledged his service to him. And he was humble about it. And you look at the flip side. Look at the emotion in Saul, right? Jealousy leads to fear and manipulation. Jealousy takes you the exact opposite way. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Verse 15, when Saul saw how successful he, David, was, he was afraid of him. Verse 28 and 29, when Saul realized that that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Living with fear like that takes a toll on a person. You ever been afraid of something? You ever had that... Uh, Angela and I call it the pit in our stomach where you know something's just not right, you feel it, but you're not quite sure what it is, and it just weighs you down, right? Saul is constantly, this fear of David, this fear of losing his kingdom, of his kingship is growing and growing. And when we have that, we we, want to do something with it. And what Saul does, he, he tries to manipulate the circumstances to avoid a loss of control, Verse 13, he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaign. Maybe if I send him off to war, he's going to die. Do you guys pick up any irony in that? Do you remember David's story later down the road? David has an affair with Bathsheba and what does he do with Bathsheba's husband? I'm going to put him at the front lines of the battle. David, even in his goodness, had learned a lesson from Saul. Verse 17 Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Meribah, I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. David, you, you, you need to do this for God. Boy, we use that one, right? When we can spiritually manipulate somebody, it's incredibly powerful, right? Saul had said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. And in verse 21 went with Michael loving him. I will give her to him, he said, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may against him. See, jealousy takes you down this path to fear, which leads you to manipulate the situation. And if the manipulation doesn't work, which it doesn't at all, through all of this, Saul tries everything, nothing works, the fear just becomes greater and greater. Now, this is all pretty easy to see. There's nothing too profound. Jeff, you've kind of just retold the story with a little nuance. That's all you've really done. And we know that these emotions, we know that love leads you one way, we know that jealousy and fear will lead you another way. We know that, right? Right? Thanks for spending 15 minutes on the obvious, Jeff. But I want us to see this because when we see this, we we can move one level deeper in our questioning. We know these emotions lead to these places, but here's the question where do emotions come from? That's the question. Emotions will always lead us places, but where do they come from? Let's go back one more level. How do we get to the root of what's going on in our emotional life, and then surrender that to Jesus? We would often like to experience, we experience emotions, we like to ignore emotions, but we don't always like to explore our emotions. We don't always want to do the work that exposes us to the truth that's going on. And, And here, let me just make this point really clear. Some of you will be able to go away from today and say the sermon was about Saul being jealous. Don't be jealous. Christian people shouldn't be jealous. And I've said that that's in the text, sure. But that's not what the sermon's about. I want you to realize I'm not talking about jealousy as much as I'm talking about the emotions that we experience on a day-to-day basis. It's often said the eyes are the windows to the soul. But what I want to say to you is the emotions are windows to the soul. When I when I've thought about that, well, the eyes are windows to the soul. That's in the Bible, right? Everybody thinks that's in the Bible, or I, I thought it was. Um, the Bible doesn't exactly say that the eyes are the window to the soul. Jesus does say in Matthew 6 the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying that there's something going on with your eyes that reflects what's inside of you. But what what I'm seeing more and more is that these emotions that come out in our life. Anybody had an emotional outburst in your life where you got angry or happy or completely sad or frustrated? We've all had those, right? What I'm saying is those are big road signs to stuff that's going on inside of us. But usually we don't stop long enough to think about them. And it's interesting, with that eyes are the window of the soul, there was a study done back in 2017 at Cornell University where smarter people than me go, and this guy Adam Anderson, a professor of human development, he he said, the eyes offer a window into the soul, and according to the recent study published in Psychological Science, he says, we interpret a person's emotions by analyzing the expressions in their eyes. A process that begins as a universal reaction to environmental stimuli. And now communicates our deepest emotions. And you can tell that. You can sometimes from their eyes, you can tell what's going on inside. So, but what I'm saying is not the eyes are the window of the soul, but the emotions give you insight into what's going on. So, one of the reasons they reveal so much about who we are is emotions they expose where we place our identity. They expose where we place our identity. We saw last week how Saul was so driven to look like a success that he had to take action instead of waiting for God because people's perception of him as king was vitally important to his own identity. If, if they thought he was doing a bad job, he couldn't. That, was, that cut him at the very level of his core identity. And our emotions, especially the strong ones and the recurring ones, and this is where I'm moving from just Saul's jealousy to, to other emotions that we have, they give us great insight into what we base our identity on. Hebrews 4.12. I use this passage all the time, but it's just true. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Our encounter with God as we live life will expose what's underneath. If we're following Jesus... And walking with the Spirit, these things will come to the surface because God wants to deal with them. And, and we build, we all build our lives on something as an identity. We all think this is who I am. It can be a skill that we're really good at. It could be our reputation that people like us. It could be a personality trait. I'm really funny, right? It could be our career. And those things very suddenly become the foundation of our identity and what we value, what, what we think makes us important. And when someone challenges that, we react. The situations that cut at what we base our identity on cause emotional outbursts. It, the best image I have is, and it, it's it's not an image that makes sense, but imagine that you think um, part of your identity is that people like you. That's I'm I'm a likable person, that's who I am, and that's what gives me value. People like to have me around. That, that basing, that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to be liked by people. I'm not saying that's, you don't not be liked. But what, that, what can happen is that being liked can become an idol that you hang on to. You're holding on to it. And then when somebody comes up and cuts you down or criticizes you or says something that shows they don't like you, you feel like they're pulling that away from you. And you grab harder because I've got to keep this or I don't know who I am. If you don't like me, I'm not sure who I am. And see, that's what's happening with Saul. Saul's based his identity on the fact that that he's the king and people see him as the king. And when that gets threatened, when they're singing songs about David killing 10,000 and him only killing 1,000, the jealousy flares up. Now, the jealousy is a sign that his identity is being cut away at. It's, it's, It's a typical spiritual principle. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, by the grace God's given me, I laid a foundation as a, wild build, a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. Now he's talking about who we are, how, what we become. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the core essence of our identity, that we're in Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, stray, or hall, wood, hay, or straw, I've got to learn to read again, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. You see, these emotional outbursts show us that what we're building on is being challenged. And, and, and maybe we're resting on something that can't bear the weight of who God has called us to be. I'm going to come back to this at the end. But if we will slow down long enough to acknowledge and reflect on the emotions that we feel and experience, it will give us insight. Thomas Keating, in his book, Imitation to Love, writes this, this quote, as we begin the difficult work of confronting our own unconscious motivations, our emotions can be our best allies. The emotions faithfully respond to what our value system is, not what we would like it to be, or what we think it is, and I would add even what we say it is. Our emotions are perfect recorders of what is happening inside, hence they are the key to finding out what our emotional programs for happiness really are. So. When we get angry at other people who have more stuff than we are, and I'm mad at them because how dare they have all that stuff, maybe part of our identity is we think what we have gives us value and we have less than them, right? Do you see how that, there's there's a deeper thing going on there. When I, (laughs) do I say this? When I get angry at other political parties or ideologies, and I'm, I'm not just angry at the ideology, I'm mad at the people, right? Maybe it's because I feel like my ideology is my identity, I'm, I'm not saying we don't need to argue over political ideologies. They're important. But you know what? If, if it gets you so that you can't even engage with another person as a human being, something's wrong. You've missed the point. Anger at others who are disrespectful of our time or our efforts. Have you ever had that person, you're always on time, and they always show up 15 minutes late? Oh, drives you crazy. You get angry. You know what it's saying? It's saying... I, I, I do this and that makes me valuable and you're disrespecting my value. Or jealousy, what I have or what I look like or my reputation is important. See, one of the key parts of the spiritual life is to build who we are on Jesus and his love and his acceptance. So those things, when they're taken away from us, don't throw us because we can rest in who we are in him. It's not our success or our ability that makes us valuable. It's not not Saul's good kingliness that makes him the king. It's the fact that God said, you're the king. And if he could have rested in that, his life would have been a whole lot different. Emotions can be our best teachers because they flow out of what we truly are. Not what we say we're believing, but what we actually are believing. When we get those surges of emotion and, and... Meeting them head on and being aware of the emotions that we feel is important because unchecked, they also drive our actions. If you don't realize what your emotions are doing, they will lead you places. Saul's dependence on his perception by other people leads him to try to kill David. It leads him to go crazy eventually. That's extreme, but our emotions can lead us down these paths. Luke 6.45, a good man brings out good things out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See that, by the end of the chapter, Saul's lost control. And that's why I'm saying, yes, don't be jealous. Don't, that's, that is a, an application from this sermon. But I, I'm talking more about your whole gamut of emotion. Will you stop long enough to reflect on it? When, when, think for a moment. Just If you want to close your eyes, whatever, but think for a moment with me, and I want you to think about a specific time when you experienced a strong emotion, be it anger, or fear, or grief, or even joy. Just try to isolate that experience. Take a second. When did I feel that? So strongly that most of us can think of the anger or the frustration faster than we can think of the joy or even the grief or sadness. But think of a time, an experience, and I just want you to hold that in your mind for a second. Just what was going on around when that happened? And, and, and I want you to do that because of this last subpoint. I think it's the last one. Is this the last one? If it's not, there's another one after it. But here we go. When it comes to emotions, you can experience, or you can ignore, or you can learn from emotions. I think there's three options. You can experience them. Sometimes, how many, how many times are you mad and you just want somebody to vent to? I just want to... I just want to get it out there. What you're doing is you're having an emotion of anger and you just want to experience it. I want to be as mad as I can possibly be. I'm not going to hurt anybody, but boy, I'm going to go tell somebody. I'm going to let them know because I'm just experiencing the emotion. Sometimes that's with grief too. You can just experience the grief. Even with joy. I just want to be happy. Don't cloud my mind with facts or anything else. I just want to be happy. So we can experience emotions. That's one option. Number two is we can ignore it. Shove it down. Emotions become, this, this, is the, this is in the man handbook, by the way, if, if you men have read your handbook, it says, shove your emotions down, they're no good, they're just going to get in the way. Don't start talking about them, because who knows what will happen then, right? But, but emotions are, are these obstacles that get in the way, and I need to numb myself to those feelings, or I'll never get anything done. That's, that's another thing we can do, and not just men do that, women do that as well. Or we can learn from it. We can take a moment when we have that moment of anger or frustration or sadness or even joy. And we can reflect on it and say, what is underneath this that's causing this emotion? Why did this action that this person do cause that emotion to rise up in me? What were they attacking of my belief system? David prayed in Psalm 139, search me God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want you to, to think about, now go back to that strong emotion that you felt, just for a minute. What happened to cause it? Who, who was involved? Replay it in your life. What were the specifics? How did you respond? And then, then dig a little deeper. What does that emotion say about where you place your value and your identity? What was being attacked in your belief system that caused that emotion? And then the most important question I ask is, what does the gospel say to that? What does the fact that you are forgiven and freed and a beloved child of God say to that moment? I'll end with a personal story. Um, Sometimes I hesitate to do that because I'm afraid you'll think more about the personal story. But uh, several years ago, it was many, several years ago, um, someone sat down with me and, and just thought they should share with me that they liked me, they thought I was a nice guy, but then my sermons were kind of boring. <laughs> and I just went, oh. and I, I, I'm no, I, you can always be honest with me about sermons, because I, I guarantee you, some of my sermons are boring. But I went away from that meeting completely deflated, because I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, my belief system is I don't get up here just to hear myself talk. I actually think what I'm sharing with you is important. And I hope it's important to you. And somebody coming to me and saying, kind of boring. Same old, same old. I think you preached on that seven years ago. And and I remember just spinning it, it took me a couple days. And I was just kind of, you know, not very motivated to create a sermon or to talk with people or to teach. And then all of a sudden it hit me. <laughs> You know, is my value placed on success or being liked? Is that what's important? I, I had a chance to experience that frustration, that uh, yuckiness, or I could ignore it. I could just go on, or I could learn from what it showed me about myself. Was uh, my sermons? It was more important to me that that person liked what I had to say than it was I said what I felt God had laid on my heart to say. And he, he was, he was, it was a he, so that all you women can feel free, didn't do it, but. It, 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 it made me realize I was more concerned about something else. And that's what my identity was based in. But if you don't take the time to slow down, and I, I still get, I'm, I'm not saying I've, I've reached it. <laughs> but I look at Saul and I think, you know, if Saul had a mentor, and if Saul at that moment could have said, I just hate David, everything he does, he does so well. And somebody could have sat down with Saul and said, look Saul, it's because you think that your, your kingship depends on you being better than David depends on what God's called you to. But he, he never had that. He never, never had the moment to think that through. And we often cruise through life on this emotional autopilot, experiencing, reacting, but never actually reflecting on what's happening. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We teach a prayer uh, in one of the spiritual retreats called the Daily Examine, Where at the end of the day, you just kind of replay the day in your head. And, and what happened? And God, did I miss anything? That's a beautiful way for you to realize what was that emotion showing me about what I'm depending on? And how can I let the gospel speak down here instead of up here? See, that's, that's the challenge of a sermon like this. We can all go away and say, oh, it's all about Saul's jealousy. Don't be jealous like Saul. Saul was a horrible example. He was jealous. Or I can go away and say, okay, I'm not really jealous, but man, I sure get mad at this situation. God, what are you saying to me about, what am I holding on to that makes me so angry I could spit in this situation. What is it that makes me so afraid in this situation? What is it I'm holding on to that you want to expose? You know, God will strip away everything that you depend on and he will replace it. I don't know if you've seen, but Jacob Beth's house looks a little stripped away right now. They're doing some rentals. And their whole upstairs has been gutted right down to the studs. And when Jake and I were, and Beth and I were walking through it in Angelo the other night, and you see some of the electrical things that have been done over the years. Have any of you had a house that's been renovated by people who didn't know what they were doing? Yeah, and, and all that's exposed in its glory right now. And that's one of the reasons they're doing this, right? But that's a spiritual metaphor in our own life. You know, we build and we make it look the best we possibly can. And sometimes these explosions of emotions are signs that deep within our walls, there's something that's not quite copacetic. It's not working the way it's supposed to work. And God's ripping off the drywall and pulling out the insulation. He's saying, take a look at that. Let me rewire that electricity there so that it actually functions in a way that's healthy. In a way that's surrendered to Jesus. That's the call. Let's pray. God, whatever emotions we experience, help us to to be aware. But help us not to stop with just the moment. Help us to peel back and, and look at what's underneath. Saul is such a, a good example of a bad example. And I just pray you could you could open our own eyes to our own lives because we know what you've called us to is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You're, you're making us to be like your son. And so we're going to have these moments when we just feel like it's all falling apart. Help us to receive those as gifts and realize what you're doing is showing us areas where the gospel needs to speak into our life, where the fact that you died for us, that you loved us even while we were still sinners, that you gave your life for us. Help us to experience the love at that level and help it to totally reorient the way we live emotionally and in relationship with others. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you two questions to ask yourself and a piece of advice. First of all, don't help other people determine what's underneath their emotions when someone blows up at you don't say you know you really should evaluate what it is that you're clinging to (laughs) because in that moment of emotion none of us are very clear it's not your job to fix them but i would i would say take an index card and write down psalm 139 23 and 24 search me O god and know my heart test me know my anxious thoughts see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting write that down at the top of the index card and at the bottom of the index card, write down, have I felt any strong emotion today? And what might God be saying that to, that to me through that? And put that on your bedside table. And at night before you go to bed, pray, God, search me, know my heart. And then just think back through your day. Did I, did I have any emotional... And they can be good and bad. It doesn't matter. But any strong emotion throughout the day. And then just say, God, what, what, is, what do you want to show me about that moment? Help me surrender that moment to you and to learn to grow to be like Jesus. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.